It's really good to be with you today. When I was in high school, I participated in some speech teams, and we went around and we did uh, these contests, and I did public speaking. And basically what we did is we would, in, in the category that I did, it was called original oratory. You would write a speech. It was about seven minutes long. You had to completely memorize it. And then you would get up and you would give your speech in front of judges. I loved this too because usually we would get out of school for like half a day. Um, so we would go around to different schools and we would participate in these contests. And I really enjoyed public speaking and I enjoyed doing these original oratories. And one contest that we did though um, my junior year was very different. Basically, we went to the school, but they had us do everything in front, in front of classrooms. And so we would go in front of a whole classroom of fellow students and whoever was, you know, judging, and we would, we would present, we would speak. And so I prepared for this. I spent so much time memorizing, memorizing, memorizing. So proud, just thought that it was going to be amazing. Like, I'm going to give this seven-minute speech, and kids are just going to be in standing applause and clapping. It's going to change the world. It's going to change the community. Um, you know, it's going to be on TV that night, whatever it is. You have all these crazy thoughts and ideas. And so I prepared for this. I knew how I wanted it to look. I knew how I wanted it to be. I knew what I wanted the reaction to look like. And as I got up in front of this class of seniors, and I started in on this speech that I'd given so many times in my head, so many times in front of the mirror, so many times even to other contests, I got about a minute and a half in, and my mind went completely blank. And I literally just stood there for about 10 seconds and then just walked off. Because <laughs> there's nothing else you can do. There was no saving it. There was no redeeming it. It was the shortest speech probably ever given that day. And it was so embarrassing and it was so startling and it was so uncomfortable. I didn't have notes. I couldn't, I, I wasn't in control in that situation. I couldn't just grab notes and start over again. I was just, I was just left right there. And if you know me at all, I wrestle with control. I want to be in control. In my heart, I have this little micromanager that's inside, and he wants to control everything. How things look, how things are, how conversations go, how my schedule is for the week. You can ask Laura. She would, she would nod. Yes, this is how it is. You could ask Ryan. Um, and I want so badly to control things. I want to have control. I want to know exactly what something's going to look like. I want to know exactly how something's going to go. I want it to look a certain way. I want it to go a certain way. I don't like being uncomfortable. I don't like being surprised. And I think for a lot of this, for a lot of us, and, and by a lot of us, I mean all of us, if we're honest, struggle with control in our life. I think especially when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. And so let me just for a minute, I want to talk to Christians that are in here. And if you're not a Christian yet, or if you're here, you're just exploring, or you're not sure if you're a Christian yet, I don't want you to think that this message is for you because it absolutely is. And I've, I, I want to say something um, directly to you as well. But let me talk to you today. If you're in here and you have a relationship with Jesus, I think here's what we do a lot. And think about if this is true for you if, or if something like this is true for you. I think we would say, Jesus, I'm good with you being in control of my life as long as um, as long as my relationships look a certain way, as long as they function a certain way, as long as they go a certain way. Jesus, I'm good with you having control as long as I'm not asked to change my calendar or change my schedule or it's not inconveniencing. I'm good with you having control as long as my kids do what they're supposed to do, as long as they learn what they're supposed to learn, as long as they act how they're supposed to act. Jesus, I'm good with you having control as long as you don't put me in any uncomfortable situations. As long as I don't have to sacrifice here or sacrifice there or give up time here or there, 
I'm good with you being in control. Jesus, I'm good with you being in control as long as there's an easy solution when a problem arises. Basically, I'm good with you being in control as long as this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen or I don't have to go through this or I don't have to go through that. And I think if we're really honest, I think this is something we, just, we, we wrestle with and we struggle with. And if, and if I didn't hit something on there that hits close to home, I'm sure you can think of an area in your life right now where you would say, yeah, when this happens or when this comes, um, I feel like I really struggle here. I really wrestle here. And so whether you're a Christian or not, and maybe if you're not a Christian here today, maybe this is even a core issue. Maybe this is a reason that's stood in front of you for why you haven't started a relationship with Christ, because there's a fear that if you hand over your life to him, maybe he'll ask something of you that you don't think you can handle, or you don't think that you want to go through, or that you absolutely don't want to go through, and you're afraid of that. But I think whether you're a Christian or not, when these things don't happen, so when there are things that come that are uncomfortable, when things are altered, when things pop in uh, to our life that we don't expect, that we aren't prepared for, that we just don't desire, I think here's what can tend to happen. I think we can tend to get frustrated. I think we can tend to get angry. I think we can tend to get anxious. We can tend to get overwhelmed. And sometimes we can tend to just run in the other direction. Uh, here's the truth. God doesn't want this for you. And he actually has a pretty clear solution to this. And we're going to see it in our passage today. And so if you're wrestling with control, which I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and say is all of us, but I think God has a very, very clear solution as we look at our passage in John 11. And so if you turn there, Ryan, uh, Brian read part of it. We're going to start in verse 45. And as Ryan preached last week, we saw Jesus do some pretty phenomenal things. In fact, we saw Jesus raise a dead man back to life. He raised Lazarus back from the dead who had been in the grave for four days. And Jesus comes to Mary and to Martha and to the people that are there. And he brings Lazarus back to life. And it shows his infinite power over death. He had done many big signs. He had done miracles. But in this case, Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. And we see in this passage that we're in a turning point. So up until this point, we've been learning a lot about who Jesus is. We've wanted him to speak for himself. There can be a lot of distortions of who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. What Jesus has done. What Jesus' heart is like what he cares about. And what we see from the people in this passage, in this time, when Jesus raises a man from the dead, it's a turning point. It's a turning point in the story as it leads to the cross. So here's where we start in verse 45. This is after Jesus had raised Lazarus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, raising Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so some accept and they believe in him because they've seen what Jesus has done and they've seen um, who he is clearly. They have faith, but others reject. And so in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
And so despite the leader's best efforts up to this point, despite trying to silence Jesus, despite trying to convince people that Jesus absolutely was not divine, that he was not God, that he was blasphemous, that they should not follow him, they should not listen to him, he ends up developing a pretty large following. Because for a lot of people, seeing Jesus do the things that he did and speak with the authority that he spoke They couldn't help but believe as the Holy Spirit opened up their ears and opened up their eyes to Jesus. And so as more and more and more people are following him and believing in him, it absolutely threatened the leaders. Because Jesus was not who they wanted him to be and he was not doing the things that they wanted him to do. And they couldn't control him. And this is where we see the height of this. They realize he's developing a following. It's threatening to us. Rome is going to find out what's going on here and they're going to come and they're going to take our place and they're going to take our nation. And here's what's interesting here and I think it's so so true is that Jesus is going to do what he's going to do regardless of pushback. He had a ton of pushback from the leaders, a ton of pushback from others and yet he's going to do what he's going to do because he always has a plan. Even with pushback, even with opposition, he's moving forward. Uh, My parents had a plan for me growing up. It was to go to the dentist. Uh, I don't want to offend anybody. I know that Julie and at least Eddie are dentists in here, but I'll be honest. I did not like going to the dentist growing up, and I still don't like going to the dentist today. Um, but my parents had a plan. It was to take me to the dentist. It was to make sure I didn't have cavities, which I had several. And I hated it. I hated it. I was opposed to it. I wanted nothing to do with it. It was not what I wanted. And so I would I would scream and shout, and I try to do everything I could not to go there. I try to barter. As a kid, you're trying to barter like you have something to offer your parents. Come on. Like, I'll make my bet, I promise. It's like, you should be doing that anyway. Um, and no matter my best efforts, I would end up going to the dentist. But it wasn't something I enjoyed. It wasn't something I liked at all, and I fought against it. And that's really what these leaders are doing here, is that Jesus is not who they expected him to be, and he's not doing what they expected him to do. And they're fighting as hard as they can against it to silence him so that they can ultimately have control. Caiaphas' plan, did you notice that? Caiaphas comes along and he basically says, yeah, right. Rome's not going to do this, but here's what would be better. He has another plan. What would be better is if Jesus, one man, died so that we all wouldn't be threatened. One man would perish. And so Caiaphas' plan is really we need to do everything that we can to just completely take Jesus off the scene. Let's silence him completely, and the only way that we can do that is take his life. And that's why it shows us that from that day on, they decided to put him to death. And what's interesting here is that if Jesus, they they would have followed, these leaders, they would have followed if Jesus did what they wanted him to do. And here's what they wanted. If Jesus came and he had political plans to take over, they would have absolutely followed him. If Jesus would have come and he would have offered them great wealth and great power, they would have absolutely followed him. But what Jesus does is he is a different kind of king. He's not a political king. He's not looking to take reign in an earthly sense, to put himself up in a tower and to reign over the people in a political way. Instead, he ushers in a very different plan. He ushers in a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of compassion, a kingdom of love. He comes and he fulfills the law. And the leaders can't stand it because it's not what they expected and it's not what they wanted. And I think we do the same thing. I know that I do the same thing. 
When Jesus doesn't do what we want, when we want, how we want, in the relationship that we have with them, we tend to plot a takeover. And that takeover may look different. It may mean that we are the ones that then try to step in and figure out how to fix things. We're the ones that try to step in and put a stop to some of the uncomfortable situations that Jesus may bring along in our presence. We may try to stop in and even just put, a, put, a, put an end to a situation, a dilemma, a struggle, a suffering that, that we don't want to be there. We can step in even in our marriages and relationships and we can try to fix those in different ways. We can get self-help. We can do all of these things when Jesus isn't who exactly we want him to be or he's not doing exactly what we want him to do in our timing, in our life. We can easily plot in the, in the same sense. And so as they do this, here's what it says in verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to the country to Jerusalem where the Passover was to purify themselves. And so they were looking for Jesus. He had done these amazing things. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jesus is really big on timing. It's not that Jesus is scared, and that's not why he goes off and he stays in Ephraim. But you've seen throughout John, if you look at it, that it says several times as Jesus escapes or Jesus kind of disappears from a situation that his time had not yet come. And that's the same thing here. His time had not yet come. He knew when it would, and he knew what it was going to mean. But at this point, his time had not yet come. And I want you to hear this this morning. For us, Jesus knows exactly, he knows exactly what you're going to go through. He knows exactly when you're going to go through it. He knows exactly when your comfort zone is going to be tested. When your schedule isn't going to work out the way that you originally thought it was. He knows all of it. He knows when you're going to suffer. And he knows when you're going to face challenges. He knows all of those things. And so the question that you might ask and that I ask often is then why doesn't he do something about that? Why doesn't he keep that from us? That would seem easier if he already knows. If he, if he sees everything, if he knows what's going to happen, then, then why doesn't he in a sense um, put a big bubble of protection for all those things around me so I don't have to go through those, so I don't have to face those? And I think we, it's a valid question. I think we get a good answer in these next few verses. And so Jesus heals Lazarus. And then the Jewish leaders plot against him. He goes and he spends time with the disciples, but then the Passover is coming. So we pick up in verse 1 of 12. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of them reclining at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made, of pure, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. So I want you to think about Mary here for a minute. Her brother died, Lazarus. That was very unexpected. It wasn't something that was in her plans. 
In fact, she even says to Jesus when he comes, uh, Mary and Martha, if, if you'd have come earlier, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Jesus, we know that you love Lazarus, so why didn't you come? And Mary absolutely loves her brother, and yet this unexpected thing comes into her life and into her family's life in this situation. It's uncomfortable, and Lazarus dies. And she had no control over the situation. She couldn't bring Lazarus back to life, and she couldn't prevent him from dying. But she knew, as she interacted with Jesus, and as she got to know Jesus more, she knew exactly who did have control over the situation. And now, and this is the most amazing thing to me, I can't think of a more humble way to worship. Imagine this. This perfume that it's talking about here, this perfume made of pure nard, a pound, this would have cost about a year's worth of wages. So I want you to imagine this. This is a pound of amazing perfume, and Mary brings it, and I have no idea how she even had it. It's so expensive. And what does she do? What does it say in this passage? She sits and she literally washes Jesus' feet with her hair. I don't think we should miss that because that is such a humble act. I've never washed anyone's feet with my hair. I've never even thought of doing that. I don't even think Lord would want that. But Mary comes and it's the most humble way that she knows to worship. What words couldn't express, she does in this incredibly gracious and humble act. She worships, she washes his hair, and she gives what she couldn't afford because she's being conformed. And so, here's what I don't want you to miss today. Here's what I want you to see. Is when it comes to us wrestling with control, when it comes to the frustration, anxiety, being overwhelmed, all those things that may come as we wrestle with that in our relationship with Jesus, is that Jesus won't conform to be more like you, but he does invite you to conform to be more like him. And so if we're looking for what's the solution to when we feel like things are out of control or when we feel like something comes up that I didn't expect or I didn't want or um, I'm not sure even what to do with, what is, what's my response, what should I do? And what Jesus clearly shows us is he invites us to become more like him, not for him to become more like us. And so as we answer this question, which you ask, why doesn't he keep this from happening? Why doesn't he keep these things from us? Because he wants to conform you to be more like him. He wants to grow you. He loves you. And he wants to do that through whatever it is, whatever it is that comes along. Whether it's suffering in some way, and yes, we will suffer in different ways. Whether it's just a struggle that comes along, maybe in a relationship maybe just in life in general, whether it's even Jesus bringing someone along and it's, it's a situation that you may not feel as comfortable in, but even an opportunity to share your faith or to speak boldly about who Christ is and these things pop into our life on such a regular basis. He wants to conform us. He wants to use this to make us more like him because here's what's so critical for us to understand is that Jesus' primary goal for your life is not to make you more happy, to, but to make you more holy. It's not to make you more comfortable, but more consumed with him. It's not to make you more safe in life, but more satisfied in who Jesus is and what he offers. That's what he is primarily concerned with as things come into your life. He doesn't want you to run from him. He doesn't want you to try to take control and do it on your own. But he wants to conform you to be more like him. And these men, these Jewish leaders, 
They wanted nothing to do with that. They didn't even want to consider Jesus' plan. They didn't want to consider who he really was. And yet Mary fully understands and grasps who Jesus is, and she offers humble worship. She gives what she couldn't afford to give, and she does the most humble act possible in worshiping Jesus. But then we see someone very different from Mary in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Judas could not grasp this kind of love and devotion that, that Mary showed. In fact, it just upset him. It made him mad. It made him really frustrated that she would do this. He didn't care about the poor. We see that clearly in this passage. It explains that to us. But he couldn't grasp this because Jesus is not who he expected him to be and he didn't offer what Judas wanted him to offer. Judas thought that if he followed Jesus, that it would mean wealth and power. Judas' hope was that Jesus would overthrow Caesar. And as we see in, in Judas' kind of dirty money habits, when he didn't get that, what did he do? He started stealing. He started taking money for himself because he wasn't getting what he wanted and he was left frustrated. Judas didn't understand it because Judas had no, no desire to be conformed to who Jesus was. In fact, he wanted quite the opposite. He wanted Jesus to become who he wanted him to be. And so Judas is very different, as we see in this passage from Mary. And I think it's important for us that Jesus, and the way that we look at Jesus, that it's not a pick-and-choose mentality when it comes to our relationship with him. Um, I like burgers. That's a random thing to say, but I do. I like going and, and uh, you know, just eating, grabbing hamburgers, things like that. But here's the deal. I don't like onions. I really don't. And so it's really easy for me, you know, wherever I would go, just to say, hey, I want this on here, but I really don't want that. I don't want onions on there, you know. And that's easy. We do that all the time. In fact, our society and our culture, it's very pick and choose. We can choose what we want to do. We can choose what we don't want to do. We can choose how we want this to be. We can choose how we don't want it to be. You know, you can choose all of these different these different settings for things and we can customize things and we can make it exactly how we want it to be and look exactly how we want it to be and function exactly how we want it to be but here's the deal when it comes to Jesus it's not like Burger King it's not you can have it your way it's just not Jesus says when you follow me you're you're laying down your life and you're picking up mine and that's what he wants for you and it's not because he wants harm for you it's because he wants good for you because he knows that the best thing for you is not to get your way but to actually follow in his way and that's hard, and it's not easy, and it's tough, and we're not perfect at it, and I'm not good at it, and I struggle with it on a daily basis, probably on an hourly basis, but that's what he wants most for us because that's the best thing for us. And it's in those times, I don't know about you, but it's not necessarily in the easiest times that I feel like I'm becoming more like Christ, but when there's a trial, when there's a struggle, that's why James says it's actually good that you would go through these trials and temptations so that your faith would be perfected. And so some of the things that come into our life, whether Jesus brings those in or whether he allows those, instead of pushing back, instead of just getting frustrated and angry, maybe we should redirect our train of thought to say, how is Jesus going to use this for me to become more like him? to conform me, to be more like him. 
I think we like things to be really neat. I do. I already said that. Control freak. Micromanager. And I think we like our version of Jesus to be really neat. We like for Jesus to fit in a really neat box. Exactly the size that we want it to be. And as long as he does what he's supposed to do, and as long as he fulfills what we think he's supposed to fulfill, then we're good with it. But as soon as Jesus spills out from that neat box, we start to push back. We start to get concerned. We start to get frustrated. We start to get uneasy. And when Jesus moves out, I think that it's very easy for us to become similar in some ways to Judas. I think we can say this, well, this isn't what I thought it would be like. I thought that knowing Jesus would mean more comfort, more ease, less pain, less hurt, less struggle, and we can easily become frustrated. Because Jesus isn't who exactly we thought he would be. Or maybe he's not doing exactly what we thought or hoped he would do. And maybe it's just a good opportunity for us to rethink things. As I came up to the building this morning, somebody decided to put graffiti on the side of this building. It happens. Um, By the door that I come in, basically someone graffitied a few weeks ago. It just said, um, rethink your God. And every week that I've looked at that, I've just been like, "Ah, that's somebody that just, you know, is upset at the church. But as I looked at it this morning in this passage, I was like, yeah, maybe I should rethink my God and who he really is and what he really wants for my life. Maybe the picture of Jesus that I have, I need to check and see if it's actually who Jesus really is. Instead of trying to make him a version of who I wish he was. And so I think we need to be careful not to judge Judas quite as harshly here. Obviously, he did horrible things, but I think we should also look at our own lives. And we see Judas's future, and I'm not going to go into it in depth, but as we go further, Judas betrays Jesus. And Judas still doesn't get what he wants. He's still not fulfilled because he doesn't have Jesus. And if you know Judas's story, he hangs himself. He dies a horrible death. He's not satisfied. He wanted control for a time. I think he even thought he got control. He betrayed Jesus, and he he knew that this would mean maybe even the approval of the religious leaders that were now seeking to kill Jesus. And so if they killed Jesus, Judas wanted to be next in line so that he could maybe get approval through them and maybe gain power, and yet he's not satisfied. He has second thoughts, he has doubts, and eventually takes his own life. Jesus, I'm sure, didn't want that for Judas. Jesus doesn't want that for you. Instead, he wants to make you more like him. He doesn't want you to try to wrestle so hard to make him more like you. And so we can have a lot of plans, we can have a lot of ideas for our life, but if becoming more like Jesus and showing more of Jesus isn't one of them, I think we need to rethink our plan. We need to rethink what God wants for our life. It says in this passage, um, and you might find this interesting, and you might find it a little bit odd, Jesus says, for the poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. This isn't Jesus not caring for the poor. He cared about the poor very much. In fact, he commissions his disciples to go and care for the poor and the orphans and the widows. But what Jesus is saying is that we're on the brink of history and you have no idea what's really coming, but I'm about to, I am about to give you and offer you salvation through my life. I'm about to secure salvation. And so Judas, here's the deal. Focus on who I am during this time. Realize who you're with during this time. Being in communion with me during this time. And Mary fully understood that. That's why she worships the way she does. That's why she's so humble. That's why she lays down 
herself before him, even in washing his hair. His last few verses here. When a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus' plans didn't make sense to the Jewish leaders. They didn't make sense to Judas. They threatened their comfort. They threatened their security. It threatened their prosperity. And so they rejected him. And I think we can easily do the same in different ways at different times. It doesn't mean that you run completely away from Jesus and you don't have a relationship with him, but I think that oftentimes we can try to take control of different situations. We can try to stay in a safe place even when Jesus brings people into our path. Had some really good conversations the past couple days even about evangelism and what it looks like to proclaim the gospel. And here's the thing that I know is that Jesus is bringing people into all of our paths at different times every day. And I think that for a lot of us, myself included, it can be uncomfortable. Maybe it's uncomfortable because we don't know exactly what to say. Maybe it's uncomfortable because we don't think we know enough. But it's not by mistake that Jesus brings the people that he does into our path. Because he wants us, as we're being conformed to be more like him, to show more of him. And I think that we can struggle with this a lot. And here's what I would encourage you with, and we'll talk more about it even throughout other messages and other sermons. But here's the deal. If that's a place of uncomfortability today that you're just like, I would follow you, Jesus, and I'm I'm following you, but please don't make me vulnerable in these ways. Please don't threaten my comfort in these ways. Please don't bring somebody to me and, and, and you know, put me in a situation where, where I just don't feel as, as, as comfortable as I wish I did. Here's what I would say. Just start a conversation. Maybe that's the first place for some of us. Just start a conversation. Just ask somebody how they're doing. Ask them what they think about Jesus. You'd be amazed what people will share with you. You don't have to know everything, but would you give Jesus control of that when he brings people into your presence? Would you step out in faith and trust that he is bringing them there for a purpose and a reason? And then would you see what the Holy Spirit will do is you'll just follow him in that. So I'd encourage you this week, that's a tidbit, but maybe start a conversation with somebody and see where Jesus leads it, especially if that's a place that's just tough for you, that's a struggle for you. I think there will be times when what Jesus brings into your life, when how he moves in your life, when how he allows, what he allows in your life, when it just doesn't make sense from your perspective, when it doesn't make sense from our perspective. I was thinking yesterday um, just about even what's happened this, this weekend in Paris. And I think we look at that and we look at even what this organization's been doing over the past year and just slaughtering people and slaughtering Christians and wreaking havoc. And we look at that senseless act and we say, how could God bring any good out of this senseless act? And I want you to hear this. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that this act is in God's plan. I think it's a sign of a very broken world that needs Jesus more than ever. But yet, in Jesus' power and authority, even in these situations, he is in ultimate control. And he will bring good in different ways. Even when, from our perspective, we can't fully understand it, when we can't see it, when it's, we're tempted to be very frustrated by it, when it's challenging, 
when we would rather not walk down this way, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you don't take me down here, or do this, or bring this in. But in the ultimate sense, Jesus is in absolute control. And when I read this passage, and I was thinking about this over the last couple days, I thought about even what, what happened there. I thought about this passage, and particularly what Caiaphas prophesied. Did you notice what he prophesied? That it would be better that one man would die than for the nation as a whole. And it's interesting to me because obviously his plans were for evil, but he was right. It would be better that one man would die than for the whole. And that was what was at Jesus' heart. Is that he would die for, for humanity. Is that Jesus ultimately would give up his life. That he would go to the cross not too, much, not, not too long after this. And then although Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders, they thought they'd regained control if they put Jesus to death, little did they know that what Jesus was doing was then taking total control over sin and death. And what they intended for evil, he would, he would do amazing things and he would do good. And he would offer us life. And so the one that they're seeking to put to death and do away with, Jesus is the one that's going to go to the cross and ultimately through that, Offer us new life. And so I think when we have doubts or when we just find it challenging to bend to the will of God, to lay ourselves humbly down and just worship, to allow God to lead in our life in different ways and circumstances, to not shy away, I think that it's good for us to remember that Jesus is in total control. And regardless, sometimes of pushback, he is going to do what he is going to do because he has a plan and he knows what that is. And ultimately, it's for our good. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, his plan is for your good. He wants to offer you new life. He wants to be the Lord of your life. And although that may be a scary thing now, I think that it's such an amazing thing that he offers you because his plan for you is far better than your plan for yourself. And so although he won't conform to be more like you, he does invite you to conform to be more like him. And so I think in uh, wrapping this up, we need to be careful not to try and make Jesus into who he never was and who he will never be and to make ourselves into who we should never be. But instead, allow him to have control, no picking and choosing, so that he can make us into who he wants us to be for his honor, for his glory, for our good, and for the good of those around us who have yet to meet Jesus. And as we allow him to do this, what can happen is, is pretty phenomenal and pretty amazing. Your desires, your desires, what you'll find is that as you're conformed to be more like him, your desires will become more like his. Your lack of comfort that produced anxiety now produces reliance in him. Suffering that brought on anger before now becomes an opportunity to exercise faith. Frustration that used to come with unexpected changes and challenges now leads us to come humbly before Jesus for help. And opportunities to show and share our faith that seem too daunting, fearful, even a distraction produces brokenness for the person and boldness through the Holy Spirit to pursue. And as Jesus seeks to conform us to be more like him, here's what I love is that he's incredibly patient with us. He's so patient. What I would say today, what I would challenge you with and to think about is, where does it start today? What is maybe that one or two 
clear areas in your life where you are really struggling with giving him control? Is it your family? Is it your future? Is it your relationships? Is it a feeling of just not being comfortable? What is it that you're wrestling with and what does it look like today to hand that to Jesus? To hand that to Jesus, to step out in faith, to allow him to start to conform you even more into who he wants you to be. Because Jesus won't conform to who he wants to. Jesus won't conform to be more like you, but he does invite you to be more like him. And it's a beautiful thing as we become more like Christ.